This episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses that you can get delivered to your door for a fraction of the price you pay in stores. To learn more, visit casper.com slash supertrain. Hello. Hi, John. Hi, Merlin. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Wow, you do. You sound great. Yes. I've decided that I'm peppy. Today or, or permanently? Oh, I don't know. You know, just try to look on the bright side of life. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I mean, that lasted for a minute or two there. Yep, yep. You just keep looking at the chimneys. You know what I'm saying? Looking at the chimneys. That's what they say. They say, look at the chimneys. When you're walking around, most people will, like, stare at the ground or stare at the middle distance. Try to remember to look up. Look at the chimneys. It will, it will oh, uh, look at the chimneys. You look at the chimneys. It'll elevate your mood. Yeah, you'll see the chimney chimbley sweeps. <laughs> Barrow boy. Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Look at the chimneys. I don't know. It's like diets. Who knows if those things actually work? Looking at the chimneys. Looking at the chimneys. But if you tell yourself it works, it might work. Yeah, smile when you sing. That's right. And smile when you're talking to the phone. Nods as good as a wink to a blind bat. Is that right? Smile when you're talking to the phone? I that, guess so. That's what my mom Here, did. I'm- Try that. My hey, mom said that hey. she's in sales. She learned that when you're talking to someone, smile. Yeah, how does this does this podcast sound better? <laughs> it sounds like I, two deranged clowns trying to sound it happy. Sounds, it sounds pretty good now it that we're sure both does. smiling. I wonder if we could do the whole show like this. I bet we could. I bet from now on, if we just smiled through the whole show, it would be a much more We sound scared. Experience. We sound very scared. Have you noticed that, I, I, I may have mentioned this before, but... If you listen to a sportscaster uh, talking about sports, yeah, the uh, the sound that they make is the same exact sound as if you were yelling at somebody because you're really mad at them. And you think it's heavily compressed, probably? No, no, no. I mean, I don't mean the oh, you sonically, mean just like the, I mean, their like normal their normal the tone, tone of like, voice. It sounds like yeah, you're like, like yelling at somebody in traffic or something. Yeah, exactly. Like here he comes, and he's back. You know, it's just like it's um, it's the same. It evokes the same. That is so interesting. It, like if me, you were to like, I, you know, you think about like when you listen to like uh, people calling like South American, as they say, football games. You, you mm. can get that vibe clearer if you're not a native speaker because the the tone just sounds so manic. Yeah, yeah they're really upset. I'm interested in um, in the uh, radio host Alex Jones. I'm very interested in him. And um, How so? well, I, I don't want to get too far into it. I've talked about this a lot of places, a lot of times. Very interested in Alex Jones. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, I, I turn to you as an industry expert. Like I've heard him when he just talks and yells. He has a very low and very kind of grindy voice in real life. Yeah. But but when they record him for his show, for his YouTube stuff, for his radio show, they do something. I think they do something to his voice. I think it's something they do to a lot of talk voices. And I always, it sounds bigger. It sounds growlier. It sounds more evenly growly. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Is that, is that mm-hmm. a quality of the microphone? Do you think it's compression? Like what aural enhancement? Like what do you do to make somebody's voice sound like this? Like no matter how loud they're talking. It's mega compressed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because it's compressed, it's compressed at the source and it's compressed up the chain. And then it's, you know, it's got that crazy radio compression on it too. That's the, so that's the feature. <laughs> when I think of like AM radio, 
especially. And that, that particular kind of sound of somebody on like talk radio, you think that's mostly compression? Well, so what's funny about that compression is I, I was having a very, very interesting conversation with the radio DJ not very long ago, a professional professional was this someone at, the, at kexp john well he was describing an experience of going to kexp he is himself not a kexp dj but um but he was going there to do an interview and talk to some kexp people you know mm-hmm. talk talk to the professional kexp djs and he got there and he said um that a little trick of the trade that the the KEXP DJ, who's a who's a fairly famous person in these parts at mm-hmm. least, has is your, set is that, it up. Is that your morning guy? Well, you know, let's just say for the sake of yeah, for the sake of argument, let's just say it's a morning guy. <laughs> Do you have some legal reason that you're being so dicey <laughs> about who these people are? Well, you know, it's a small town here. Oh, and, sure. Uh, People get really, you know, this these is are, all these very are fraught, serious. These are fraught times, John. Fraught. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want to be careful who you who you tell people you know. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, so, KEXP setup. So here he is, and he's doing this interview with the guy, and he immediately recognizes that he's got the uh, he's got the compression on on their interview, like it's super slammed, and he's got it so that his voice, the uh, the 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 host. It's just always going to be a little bit louder, a little bit like better than the guest. He gets, right? the, he gets the alpha setting, the the gorilla mindset setting. Yeah, but but my my uh, my my um, my companion in this conversation says he recognized that the compression was so crazy that he just started talking really quietly. <laughs> and the compressor then, because he was talking so quietly, the compressor would would super super grab onto his voice and and it made him the louder of the two because what? he was he was working with the he he understood that the compressor was set in such a way that the more quietly you spoke the more the compressor would work and it and it was it was actually making his voice appear louder by virtue of just talking more and more quietly wow. and so he was he was he was like gaming this guy's compressor settings in the interview and and you could by by the story you could tell that that the other dj <laughs> recognized what he was doing but you know is some somewhat powerless because this is his tone this is his setting this is his tone he can't start to get weird and that would be weird and like get all get all like uh uh aor yeah, he had, to main, he had to maintain his tone, his vocal style. That's, that's his vocal brand. So this other, you know, this other character was just like, yeah, that's very interesting. Good question. And it was like, re- you know, his voice was really, I think, filling up people's ear, ear holes. So Alex Jones may, in fact, not be making that much noise. Hmm. He's got the gravel in his voice, and he's talking. Yeah, everything's crazy. But he's, but he's maybe not making that much volume. It might be that that his compressors are doing all the work. Because if you talked like that all the time, you would. 
you blow out your voice. So, like you could take. Yeah. I remember hearing a thing on public radio where I hear about these things. About I believe you could take a class uh, to learn how to do like shredding metal vocals mm-hmm. in a way that doesn't mm-hmm. wreck your voice. Apparently, there's a method for doing that. That if you do it the way it sounds like you should do it, you'll just you'll shred your voice. Yeah, how, did, you, how did Bobcat Goldthwait do that all those years? Oh, I don't know. I, I think he's just a little broken inside. He's, uh, <laughs> but you know that you're right. That's part of the brand. So it's probably also fairly heavily gated. So every word, but like with a fast gate, like a strong but fast gate, right? Mm-hmm, strong fast gate. Mm. I'm I, that using was words great, I don't really understand. I, that was I, a great I, TV show, <laughs> Fast Gate. <laughs> <laughs> also, didn't they do that song? Oh, fast, of course, fast gate. Closing <laughs> you will. time. What? You? Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm still smiling. <laughs> uh, well, the, you know, uh, the big, the big reveal for us in the uh, in the rock and roll scene was realizing that Chris Cornell made almost no sound at all. Hmm. Chris Cornell of Soundgarden. Um, rumor was that he churned through monitor guys because he had this sort of this impossible situation which was he's fronting this massive band and if you listen to the records you know I'm going to reach down yeah is fucking killing it but in fact he's making like He's moving very, very little air, and he's just like, "Yeah, I can now." And he figured it out. So that wrote that means that, in the midst of all of that very, very loud noise, they've got to be able to bring up his vocals without causing feedback. Correct. That sounds very challenging. Correct. They've got to be able to bring up his vocals in the monitors, right? Like at the front of the house. Particularly if you're playing super big rooms, you know, you've got a lot of, you can do a lot up there, right, mm-hmm. to make everything sound right if you're good at, at front of house. But, you know, I think especially before in-ear monitors, your monitor guy's just like, look, man, I'm giving you all that I can. And he's up there, he's up there saying, like, I can't hear myself. Mm. Find, find more. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Pretty crazy. But, but. That may have been true of that may actually be true. This is and I've and I've wondered this for a long time. It may in some or another way be true of all those guys. Maybe Kurt Cobain wasn't singing that loud. Maybe none of them sing that loud. Maybe I'm an idiot because I didn't understand that. I didn't understand how microphones work. John, you're so, you're working harder, not smarter. That's exactly what right? I'm what I'm terrified of. Like I got up there when I first started playing rock music and I thought that's what it sounded like. And I was capable of making that much noise. What I, I was capable of making as much noise as it sounded like. And so I would just scream into these microphones. I didn't need to. I could have just been like la da 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 da. Instead of, you know, I was really going for it. At the end of a show, I lay down on the floor panting. And did when I was twenty. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to. I could have just been using the microphone. I could have just turned up the knob. Just use the mic. But this isn't something we've re- revisited uh, several times in the past. But the, especially when you're when you're touring, and let's say you're in Europe or you know really anywhere, it's really 
it's a different night every night in terms of the setup and the sound. Like you know what all your stuff should sound like, but you know it could be you just get the, the you know the sound man is too high and the bartender has to run sound or something, right? Where you have to be, don't you have to be very self sufficient to like where uh, you could almost do without monitors if you had to? I mean, in the way that you prepare, you can't assume that you're going to get those radio head earbuds and stuff like that. Yeah, but you. I mean, you work to, I think, what you, you, you work within the house that you built in your own mind. Mm-hmm. So if, if, if mm. I had started off singing, you know, like, well, I just have these words to sing at this volume, I would, I would, <laughs> I would be adjusted, you know, You're so and good at I, lyrics. You're so good. <laughs> thank you. Thank so you. Some of them would just be sitting on the couch while they're recording. You write, you write a, you write a hit song. You'd just be, be sitting like, there. Listen. Hmm. I am looking out the door, mm-hmm. and I can see the outside. Crap. There it is. <laughs> Chorus. Door, door, door. Spoon, spoon, spoon. Spoon, spoon, spoon. <laughs> but you see, spoon means different things. It's different spoons. Uh-huh. Oh, yes. Right? Oh, Teaspoon. Yes. That's what I kept saying to people. But they, don't they don't understand. Listen. They're not really listening. Teaspoon. I- Every time I say teaspoon, it means a different thing. It means a different thing. Yes. It's your fault that you don't understand that there's five teaspoons and they're five different (laughs) things. Shame on shame on them that you have to explain your teaspoons to anybody. Boo. Yeah, somebody's like, oh, that only says teaspoon. No, it says five different things about teaspoon. Mm. Teaspoon. Baby wasn't down with the heist. Teaspoon. Baby wasn't down with the heist. Just trying to do what I thought was right. Baby wasn't down. He wasn't down with it. She was not down. She with was it. not down with it. She was no, not having that's it. A little bit of, I was, you know, using street vernacular there. Oh, that's true. Uh, but you know, I can't go back. I can't go back and mm-hmm. do that. I that, can't. There's go a house back you've put... already built in your mind, and like yeah. a lot of that mortgage is paid off, whether you like it or not. Let's be honest. You live in your house mind. Y- yes. <laughs> yes. Your mind okay. house. All right. As long as we're talking tech, and this is where we're really going to lose a lot of people. Yeah. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed when we're recording. You have better ears than I. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but sometimes when we're recording, you may occasionally hear the sound of, of, a, of a streetcar going by. Yeah. yeah probably, I've, I've, I don't know I've if you've ever noticed it. If you go back and listen, you'll probably, you've heard it probably a couple times. Ding, ding. Okay. Hi, here, here's my question to you. There's only a minimum of things that I can do with damping. There are some things I could do, but that is, it's a multi-ton train here comes one right now. Rattling the ground and shaking where I am. Let's set aside that I made a terrible decision to be next to a streetcar line. To... <laughs> oh, record. there he goes. <laughs> you might not. You probably didn't hear it, but but that was a train that just went by. Yeah. Would I be well served to get? I'm just. These are words I've read on the internet and never said out loud. Would I be well served to get a cartoid or super cartoid microphone? Would that help minimize the amount of occasional streetcar sound that people hear on this program? Hmm. I'm currently using a Shure, uh, I think it's an 87A, a mm-hmm. Beta 87A is what I use right that's now. A, that's a nice microphone. And you, you are on a uh, the, the classic SMB, right? <clears throat> no, right now I'm on my... Um, oh, you're on your my, dingus. My B-caster remote microphone. That's the one you can put on your tummy when you talk, right? That's right, that's right. Currently I have it uh, staged on a book, a giant coffee table book about the history of the Brooks Brothers Company. The, the people who make suits? <clears throat> yes. Huh. 
Now, the people that make suits, you know, it's a venerable company. We, uh, it's, that's one of those terms that we use when we don't know what else to say. It's mm-hmm. venerable. Um, and that's different from and, Bobby Brooks, uh, like in the John Cougar song. It's different, yeah. You dri- no, dribble off them, Bobby Brooks, let him do what he please? Uh, that must be some kind of short short. Mm, Bobby Brooks. Okay. Or like uh, a maybe Daisy it's Duke? A, yeah, or maybe it's, a, um, maybe it's a saddle shoe or something. Okay, sorry. Some okay. kind of Midwest thing. Did but, you figure uh, out we what were it is? In, in one of the uh, uh, little uh, texts, uh, doesn't matter, uh, talking with some other people who do these things, they were talking about the need to do interviews yeah. um, and being in a, an environment where it picked up lots of background sound. And one suggestion was to get something called cartoid or super cartoid. Now, is that a super tight grouping of where the, it will pick up the sound? Is that what that means? A super tight cartoid is, uh, you're saying, is a cartoid. Oh, it's a, I think it's, I'm going to look it up. I think it's a kind of cartoid. Super. Yeah, cartoid. Co- super cartoid. Fur- it could be further. It could uh, be, there could be hypercartoids. A cartoid, cart- what, the, what they're talking about is cartoidality. Oh, car- car- cardioid? Cardioid. Cartoid Cart- is part of the body. Car- yeah. Car- okay, so, so we'll edit that out. Cardioid, yeah. Cartoid is an artery. Okay, so I should not get one that has a uh, narrow artery. So that would not be good for me as a man of my mm, age. No, I think you're gonna want. I think you're gonna want one with as big cartoid artery as you big, can. Put a stent in my mic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. The thing now. So, <clears throat> in terms of your, um, in terms of your like, uh, your cartioid mm-hmm. microphones. You can you can adjust that uh, on a lot of microphones. The one that you have right now, you, you cannot. The the, right? the the sure the the big dildo one that everybody likes. The one you like for singing. That what is that? SMB is that what it's called? No, SM seven. SM seven. That yeah. one you got the little clickers on the bottom, right? Yeah, you can you can adjust. I mean, a lot of microphones, like the one that I'm I'm talking into right now, um, has has settings it doesn't it 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 doesn't uh it doesn't actually say cardioid but it does say like you've got your you've got your mono and then you can switch it to your stereo really and can you do the roll off thingy uh, the roll off thingy isn't there a thingy like on the bottom of the of the sure there's a little wave i don't know what it does but if you get yourself a little 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 tiny like eyeglasses screwdriver you can scoot that over and that doesn't that change your amount of uh bass and whatnot yeah, you can. You so there are things called high pass filters. And there are things called low pass filters, and just as they sound, if you put a high pass filter on something, it lets the high sounds pass, and does not let the low sounds through. Oh. It will roll, it'll roll the the low off because there's thing is in 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 audio, there are at the low end and at the high end there are sounds that although you can't hear them let's say you can't hear them Mm -hmm. they can take up a lot of space in your mind house Mm. so interesting there's all this low-end information that can get put into a recording that i mean certainly there's a lot of it that you can hear but there's also a lot of it that Maybe you can't hear, but when you take it away, you can hear the absence of all this garbage. Hmm. You know, like it it's not it's 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 sonic information that is below the the level of like a recognizable note. 
Interesting. So it's not going to be jamming up the signal with something that uh, doesn't need to be there. Yeah, you cut it out, mm-hmm. and you get, and and you you cut it out up to the level that you're getting like, oh, that's a note that belongs there, or like in a kick drum, you know, you you don't want you don't want unlimited low end because it goes down there and it collects in the corners and it's full of dust and skin flakes. Oh, and you have to probably like uh, drain it or uh, get like yeah. you have to detail it, like you get like a Q-tip that- and get all that dander out of there. It's it's all it's all down there and it's going and it just adds garbage to your sound and it's true in in our voices right and if There's, you have a double a double kick drum you get I imagine at least twice as much you get it's three times as much oh that's it's it's the, an additive quality it's a logarithmic that, curve that's science yeah okay okay and at the top end it's also true that way way up high again not stuff that you maybe necessarily can actually hear like pinpoint and say like i hear that but way up there there's all this Mm. way way up at the top that is also clouding your sound and 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 causing you disharmony and i think i think the way it's described is that that stuff will harmonically resonate with things that you can hear it affects the sound of the things that you that are audible to you because sound interacts with with itself right and so high pass filters and low pass filters you put on in order to kind of collect this the information that you want which is here in this area where we can hear but you can add weird top end to things to make the make it sound brighter or make it feel like the roof is taller there's all it's sound is this crazy thing Um, where you can you can make the room sound like it's a different room by virtue of how you how much of this strange top end that you put in it that you that you're not actually consciously it's, hearing. It's such a it's such a dark art. I mean, it's, yeah, I, it, I guess this is really obvious to somebody who's done this for a living. And I, you know, I've done some of this, not so much for a living, but like it's just amazing how many factors are involved. I watched a, a pretty interesting YouTube video the other night that was just in passing. That was about this guy in I want to say England who has uh, gone to great time and expense to essentially recreate every aspect conceivable a 1950s Sun Studio type setup. And mm-hmm. it was, and it just even as an amateur, it was fascinating to watch. I'll find the link for you. But basically, he's this guy who wanted to say, say like he's this. He's trying. This is his, you know, his differentiating factor is that he has like a legit like operating fifties. It's just all the whole stack is all like you know no later than the fifties technology. And what they, the experiment they did was to see what you could do, the best way to do like a Bill Monroe type one mic setup to record a band. Versus what you can do with two mics. And it's, it was so fascinating to hear him talk about, like, I guess, you know, mics have different dead spots, like having to do with the cartoid, as you say. But basically, like, how you, will you put the drums uh, this far away and in this area so that they only get picked up by this part of the mic? It was fascinating. The what a dark art it was to get that done right. Uh, uh, unbelievable. And what's crazy is that now we, we all are listening to stereo music, recorded stereo and mixed stereo. Let's say mixed stereo, which means that across the stereo field, typically what we do is we put the drums and the bass right up the middle, which means that they are equally present in both sides of the stereo field. 
Because if you put the base over one side, the the low end, the base information is so, for lack of a better term, heavy. It's really distracting. The Ramones' first album is like that. Yeah. The, the Ramones, will... I think, the, if memory serves, the Ramones is drums in the middle. I believe bass is all on one left or right channel, and then guitar is on the other channel. Yeah, it's it just feels mis it feels unbalanced. It feels poorly weighted. Mm-hmm. Your 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 attention is drawn over to the the heavy. You know, bass has gravity and it pulls you. It pulls your ear. Mm-hmm. Now on on the on the Beatles records, of course, we we've finally made it to the Beatles. Mm-hmm. Hello, um, <laughs> because those records were so pioneering. The you know, the original mixes of all those uh, Beatles records were mono. And when it was time to mix them for stereo, which was considered a novel, like kind of weird experimental thing that only weirdos would listen to. Nobody had stereo music equipment at the time, you know, uh, like stereo home listening equipment. But they made these stereo mixes. And in those cases, they did put the drums over here and the bass over there. But it was just that we're dealing with George Martin, who was a genius, and somehow those are really <laughs> fascinating to listen to. But but we have we've fallen into the, these habits in recorded music: bass and drums up the middle, guitars panned wide, this guitar over here, that guitar over there, and then your vocals right up the middle too. But then harmony vocals spread liberally over here, and then you're going to get your little piano on the, you know, halfway over on the right, where a little bit of it's on the left, but it sounds like it's in the space, right? Yeah. And the, and the worst offenders are those drum, drum recordings where they actually record the drums and and mix them stereophonically. So when the drummer starts to starts his fill, it starts in your left ear and goes to your right ear. It's like your buddy, your buddy, your buddy did this on uh, Commander Thinks Aloud. Too much acclaim. Well, well, but but that was a that was a different trick, which was that we different parts, every, different spread. Right? Yeah, every one of those was a mono recording of a full drum kit. Wow! And we just situated those different mono recordings across the stereo field. So it wasn't a like in the in that same way of like we have a we have ten mics on this drum kit and we have each one of them arranged differently in the in the stereo field. It was like no, his kick drum is happening in six different drum tracks. I don't know how you I don't know how a person's <laughs> mind could work like that. No, it's not a mind. It's a he. It's something else. It's a you know. Is that uh, anyway? Cham- so, Chamberlain was that who that was? Yeah, Matt Chamberlain. Yeah, yeah. But so your your cardioid, mm. what, what that is, is it's a microphone, it, it's, a, it's a directionality of the microphone. And if you're talking into just sort of an omnidirectional microphone, it's picking up everything all the way around it equally. And that would be very distracting <clears throat> if you were sitting talking into a microphone like that, because the train would go by and it would be just as loud yeah. as, uh, as your voice. No, that's no good. I don't want that. Right. Well, that's not what you're doing. You know, your your little um, your little sure beta eighty seven is a, it's very directional. I mean, if you if you turn the mic away and and talk into the side of it, um, it's gonna it's gonna pick up your voice not as well, right? Right. And that and that and your microphone is actually very uh, like 
proximity effect is very important. If you get right up on that microphone, it sounds very different than if you're five feet away from it or if you're even two feet away from it. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, you you know, wheel your chair back a foot and talk into it. Okay. Here's me back here. And when yeah. I get closer to it, when I, now I can speak quietly, and I'm in proximity it's, now. Yeah, it's absolutely, yeah. you know. And so I don't, if I don't you know use, how to do these things. If you use that microphone properly, you know, your lips are not going to be that far away from it. I've got a windscreen on it. I got, a, yeah, um, I, I got this uh, really cheap uh, windscreen thing that Marco recommended. That's going to keep the yeah. sibling. What about my plosives, topic? John? My plosives? Your plosives sound amazing. Thank you. Thank you, man. But the, but the closer you get to that microphone, the more the microphone is going to pick up and the better it's going to work. Um, but so all this cardioid stuff, it's like uh, you're, you're not going to be able, I don't think, with, with, uh, with like adjusting the directionality of your mic to like hypercardioid i still think you're going to get that train in the background mm. i think because... people, people would miss it it's mostly it's a it's a thought experiment because i think people, yeah. people would miss the train let's be honest i would miss it you could put a weird noise gate on what you're doing but if you're talking the mic's going to be open um if you're if you're worried about like the train interrupting your co-host you could put a you could put a uh like it's some kind of noise gate on it, but I think that would sound weird too. You would hear this gate opening and closing unless you had it set really, really nicely. And I think you just, I think it's just your sound. I was going to make a terrible dad joke about a, something, a notional Joe Pass filter. It would be too mm-hmm. obscure of a joke to make, but I, I did discover that Joe Pass's full name is Joseph Anthony Jacoby Pasalacqua. Oh, my goodness. Isn't that a fantastic name? Pasalacqua. Pasalacqua. That is nice. Well, like, Bevilacqua is drinking water. What is Pasalacqua? People love it. <laughs> By the way, in passing, people love it when we guess what words mean in other languages. You know who really <laughs> loves that, in my experience? Who? The Germans. The, Ger- oh, they the Germans do. love it when you guess what things mean. Like, yeah. I think we stipulated. We know, now we know what Wehrmacht means. It means make war, right? Uh, it means, uh, well, I'm, who knows? Maybe that's what Pasalacqua means. Pasalacqua means make it, war. Wait a minute. Maybe, maybe it means passing water. Oh. Huh? huh? Pasalacqua. Yeah. Pasalacqua. Huh. In English. I'm passing, I'm passing the water. Tra- transitively. Uh, according well, to Urban Dictionary, Pasalacqua is a, a baller. <clears throat> a person. Uh, see, oh, I, yeah. Urban Dictionary has gotten real fast and loose about what it'll uh, accept. Pasalacqua. Urban Dictionary has turned into, uh, you know, it's a great resource, but it also, like, I don't know, there are 40 entries all saying essentially the same thing, but everybody gets to, everybody gets to say it in their own way. And that's starting to get boring. Like It happened I, with, I, when, I, uh, when the Republican candidate made a remark on Twitter about something being easy, easy D. What's up, Easy D? And I heard so many, and don't email me, I don't care, but several people very confidently gave very different, conclusive uh, readings of what that means. Some people said it's a a sex thing, obviously. Easy D? Yeah, I'm going to go out and get some Easy D. Mm -hmm. And uh, and I I think it's, maybe some people think it's like like a sports term. 
You know, yeah. like maybe it's like Easy Defense or something. But, you know, Urban oh. Dictionary, you know, uh, I actually haven't looked up Easy D on there lately. Let me see what it says. Easy D. Uh-huh. Easy D. Easy D. According to Urban Easy Dictionary, uh, top definition. It's just really nice to say. E Easy D. You see, this is a mess. This is a mess. What now, people, now see, the jackals, say? the jackals have gotten in here. And now they're monkeying around. Top definition, Easy D. The penis deeply desired by Donald Trump. See? Yeah. Easy D. Um, uh, second definition, a man that is easy to get sex from. As in a woman saying, gosh, I could really use some Easy D right now. Mm. Uh, easy D stands for douchebag president. See, you guys, you, your standards yeah. are really dropping here. Yeah. Yeah. A guy that's easy. The thing is, the D has got to represent something. Does it represent D's nuts? <laughs> <laughs> this episode of Roderick on the Line is brought to you by Casper. You can learn more about Casper right now by visiting casper.com slash supertrain. Casper is a company that is focused on sleep. They make the perfect premium mattress and they sell it online for a fraction of what it would cost in a store. Casper's award-winning mattress was developed in-house. It has a sleek design and it is delivered in an impossibly small box. In addition to the mattress, Casper now also offers an adaptive pillow and soft, breathable sheets. You see, an in-house team of engineers spent literally thousands of hours developing the Casper mattress. It is an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. So maybe it's no surprise that they have an average of 4.8 stars across more than 30,000 online reviews. Their San Francisco research and development team have developed a proprietary foam that relieves pressure and increases airflow. Then they combined it with a springy comfort layer to contour to your body and keep you cool. And that means the Casper mattresses have just the right sink and just the right bounce. These are quality mattresses at great prices, designed and developed in America. They've cut the hassle and the cost of dealing with showrooms, and they are passing the savings directly on to you. My wife and I have slept on a Casper mattress for over two years now. Don't be creepy. And in fact, we recently bought a Casper with our very own money for our daughter, she loves her Casper mattress. It is just the best. Buying a Casper mattress, it's so easy and so risk-free. It really is so simple. Casper offers free delivery and free returns to the U.S., Canada, and now the U.K. too. See, with Casper, you can actually get to sleep on their mattress before you make your decision. You try it out for 100 nights. Decide if it's the mattress that's right for you. If that is where you want to spend a third of your life, if you don't love it, they'll pick it up and refund you everything these words are all true. How crazy is that? you got to go to Casper. And right now, as a listener of Roderick on the Line, you're going to get $50 toward any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash supertrain and using the code supertrain at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Thank you so much to Casper for supporting Roderick on the Line and all the great shows. <laughs> like, what is the D? <laughs> does, it if somebody says does it represent D's nuts? <laughs> If somebody says, give me the D, yeah. what is the D in this case? Well, I don't, in the vernacular, in the parlance of our time, I, I, I'm guessing it means dick. Oh, dick. Yeah. Easy D. Yeah. Easy also, D. I, in my experience, dick is a word, and I don't, I'm not trying to be normative here. No. Uh, but I think dick is a word that men use uh, more often than women when specifically referring to a uh, penis of note, uh, in my experience, they don't say dick as much. Who girls? Yeah. Dick. Sort of a, sort of a boobs and tits type situation. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, don't you feel like there's differences in, 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 in who uses that in a not meant to be offensive way, but just like this is how I talk about my body? I've never heard a woman use the word boobs, I don't think. Really? I, I knew someone I've heard who... very few women say tits. Hmm. It's ugly. It's tits. Tinny, tinny word. I, I knew a woman that would, that would write the word boobs, B-E-W-B-S. That's really cute. She would send that uh, in uh, written communication. Boobs. But I, but I don't, you know, this is the thing, right? I mean, dirty talk. Mm-hmm. How do you, how do you affect, how do you pull it off effectively? How does it even work? Yeah. It's, uh, it's very confusing. You don't know. You don't know exactly where because it's all very all the words are bad. You got you got to be careful when you're ex, when you're exploring that kind of thing. You need you need to be real careful. Well, careful just because it's because it is spell breaking. Like yeah. it's it's not it's not that it it's not that it's offensive so much it is or, or offense or not offensive or whatever. But you don't want to make the other person laugh when you are being serious. <laughs> Right when you're like yeah. my dick, and they go, <laughs> and you say, "What? That's something. Something bad has happened. It's gone off the rails, you know." <laughs> and if she says, "Like, oh, I'm sorry. The only person that ever used the word dick was my grandfather," mm. Mm. you know, like I, I mean, I, I knew a girl who said one time, like her grandmother used the word twat. What at? Just as a, just as a descriptor, just as you now would say vagina, uh-huh. it was just some fucking Appalachian thing, where she would be changing like the, the little girl's diaper and like, oh well, here wipe her little twat or whatever. Oh my goodness, really? And th- so this girl, like that word, which a lot of us would feel like was like a pretty tough word. That's pretty edgy. <laughs> um, to her, it was just like a sweet little old comfortable like country grandma word. So everybody's got a different. Everybody's got brings a whole different bunch of suitcases into that mind room. And <laughs> how the hell do you do it? You know, like for a long time, I would never use vagina in that context because it sounded like something that your OBGYN would. Yeah, it say. does. It sounds a little bit gynecological, but. There, but it is the it is the term of art. That's true, and so I think there are a lot of people that are like, "Listen, there's not a lot of good words here, so just stick to the you know stick to the main ones, stick to the road, right? Don't go off into the bush." I had, a, if, um, if I, I, had. I, I was fortunate enough to uh, be, be seeing a girl in college who had a really cute one, um, and it was so she, she had a she had a little sister who was one of those miracle babies. Like she oh, yeah. was, she was twenty one. Her brother was nineteen, and then and her baby sister was two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, her mom got pregnant at like forty two, like out of nowhere. Can you imagine the surprise? Oh, surprise! <laughs> Guess what? Surprise! <laughs> we need to move yeah. a few things around. Yeah, you thought you were gonna go live on a cruise ship, didn't you? <laughs> nope. <laughs> and uh, and uh, her her mother would, re- when referring to her her swimsuit area downstairs, we, we'll call it her yeah. girl bottom. And I still think that's really cute. Yeah, but that's you don't want to you don't want to be interacting with a girl bottom. <laughs> I think it's sweet. Unless it's a yeah. Well, this is the thing. This is the thing. I think I, girl uh, bottoms and boy bottoms. 
I mean, I don't mean it in a fraught power exchange way. <laughs> oh, no, no, God. no, but like, I got to get a girl you know, bottom. <laughs> there's also a bottom that's also in, in as part of the mix down there, like an actual bottom. Hang on, what? Yeah, <laughs> you're right. But the the uh, uh, the the word. So for a while, I was like, look, the word pussy mm. is it's a nice word. It's a sweet word. It means like a kitty cat. Yeah. It's like a sweet little, it's it's so much better than the other words. Can I just at least uh, eliminate the confusion in my own universe by just using that word? Well, just that's, a, it's a fine word. I don't mean anything bad by it. It's just like, it just seems sweeter. And I'd like to refer to that uh, part of your body. Let's say I'm saying to someone as an introduction, like, hey, now that we're uh, getting close, yeah. let's work on some, let's let's work on some, on some vocabulary. vocabulary. Yeah. Um, and I encountered quite a bit of uh, like, yeah. about the word pussy, which seemed very sweet, but but at least to uh, people I know, it's like sounds, it's cringy. It, it, uh, and I'm it like, is, and at the, at the same time, it is a word that many women I know would use to privately refer to their girl bottom. Mm-hmm. I'd say more so than twat. Well, I don't think anybody <laughs> uses twat unless you're an Appalachian, Appalachian grandpa. Yeah. <laughs> Clean out her twats. What a I'm horrible word! So many, it's so ugly. So many letters from from the from the McElroy brothers. <laughs> you know, not all West Virginians. <laughs> Pound sign. <laughs> um, but you know, like I do, I can't use the word dick with a straight face because it just I that's don't know. Passed, that's In passed the, on to the others. That's like that's like the word ass. Like it, it. That's now a term of art. Dick. I mean, it's somebody who behaves like a dick. Oh, I see what you're saying. You like, know what I mean? Oh, I, oh, don't be an ass. Yeah, I use that. I use it that way. But has come a long way. But. But. B-U-T-T. Mm-hmm. I, that's another very tricky thing because everybody thinks about their butt, right? Everybody's mm. got a th- a, some thoughts about their own butt. Yeah. And... It's unclear who wants what aspect of their butt. What who wants attention called to what aspect of their own butt? Like, I'm oh, so, you have a- I'm so glad you brought this up. Yeah, oh, I really, really am because I think I think you can run into some real danger zones if you're not fairly specific about what you mean. What we talk about when we talk about butts. I think you can say you have a nice butt. And which, which in that case might mean that the shape of, of your posterior looks good in pants. Right. I mean, I think everyone at a base level wants to hear that they have a nice butt. Oh, yeah. yeah. If As you're getting intimate with somebody to say just casually sometime, like not, you know, like you can say it in the uh, in the boudoir. But even if you're just like out on the town and you've been dating for a while, you know, to lean over and say, like, you know what? You've got a really nice butt. That will, I think, 40 years later, that will still be in their mind room <laughs> as a really nice thing you said one time. That like, might be their favorite a, mind room in their mind house. Yeah, that is a, that's a freaking oil painting over the fireplace mm. of their mind house, right? Like my other once said that, you know, just sort of like offhand, you have a really nice butt. 
I got a compliment oh. along those lines having to do with uh, with the with uh, uh, swimsuit area. I got a compliment in 1986 that I still think about. Yeah, isn't that nice? It's just you're right. right? It's an oil painting in my mind house. It was. I was like, well, what a what a nice thing to say. And she said yeah. it in a way that didn't feel forced. It was very. It seemed like she 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 offered it freely and of her own accord, just in passing. And uh, and I still think about it. That was that was a long time ago. That's what thirty years ago. Yeah, I mean that's the key. I was walking with my girlfriend one time in a group of guys, a group of all my friends, and we're kind of bringing up the rear, if you will. Mm. And and uh, we're on the way down to the bar. We're going to the Nar Tavern. And there's, you know, six guys ahead of us, and we're walking along, and she just sort of casually under her breath says, you know, like, six guys and not a single good butt. Oh, man. And I was like, whoa. It had not occurred to me that that she was looking at, you know, and it was a casual remark. Yeah. But I looked ahead, and I was like, okay, all right, so looking at these six butts, none of them are good. Okay, okay, memorize this memorize these butts and understand that these do not these are not good butts. Oh, and so you're not, going into Terminator heads up mode at this point. Like you're just yeah, gathering like, information <laughs> about this new environment that you mm-hmm. will later use. You're like an AI, John. You're you're gathering well, all this this corpus of information to to apply in other circumstances. Looking at these six guys ahead of us, I would have made a lot of assessments, right? Like, oh, this is a bunch of the you know, like this is a bunch of dingalings or um None of these guys has any fashion sense or, you know, whatever. They look like a bunch of soccer players or whatever. But I would not have said. <laughs> That's got to be up there with, is this your first day? Looks <laughs> like a bunch of soccer players. What are you, a bunch of soccer players? <laughs> hey, hey, soccer player, keep driving. Why don't you put a soccer on your head and play? <laughs> but I, but now, yeah, she had given me this whole new uh, field of information to consider, which was six guys, not a nice button in the, in the bunch. And, you know, and of course the next an information question, rich sentence. Yeah. But I mean, here it's I got am. levels. I'm the seventh guy. Mm. Right. And she's walking next to me. She, if, if I was up there with those soccer players, would she be like, <laughs> there's one nice butt in the group or would it, or, or would there be sort of a blanket? Like, I mean, it, and at a certain point, if you're in, if you're in a crowd of six guys with not a nice, butt. How nice does your butt have to be to stand out? Yeah. Yeah. You know, like is if your butt is being assessed in all by itself, it might be like, yeah, it's a nice butt. Mm-hmm. But if you're in a group of bad butts, yeah. Oh. Maybe you get lumped in with them. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, so uh so that's the type of thing like but if you go any deeper into mm. a um into like what you like about someone's butt, mm-hmm. it gets tricky right away. Oh boy, does it ever! Oh, there's just levels and levels. It's it's a minefield. The butt. It's really tricky, and particularly now, like the the uh, the fashion uh, for the millenniums is these high waisted jeans that we uh, wore. Th- th- those were the fashion when I was in high school too, and they are not the most becoming style. Uh, because they look really good on someone who has a very pear-shaped bottom. But they don't really look good on everybody. Hmm. And um, because you have, because they're designed for like a narrow waist and a sort of very curvy 
um, you know, like they, they look, they're meant to look like a pair. Mm-hmm. Exa- exaggerate that particular curve. Do you think they, they go up high to like, could it be to, to like cover up a lower back tattoo? Or do you think it's mostly to provide a certain shape, a suggestion of shape? Good question. I find them to, in the, in the main, create less shape than, um, than other pairs of jeans. Because mm-hmm. it, it, in the... In the early 2000s, the late 90s and the early 2000s, the gene technology, I think, really focused your attention strictly on the butt Mm. so that your lower back was not engaged and your, you know, like your, even your, your, I mean, I guess your, the, your thighs are engaged in a, in a sort of general butt frame. Mm-hmm. This is part of but the problem like, is the continuum. I don't know if it's a synecdoche or a metonymy, but there's there's a whole lot of pieces and parts to to, to talk about here. So much going on, but uh-huh. but if you, if the if the genes were focused strictly on making the butt seem high and tight, which I think was the that was the version of like seven genes or whatever that was that nineties two thousands late nineties early two thousands like gene technology you could have a narrow waist or a wide waist you could have a you could be hourglass shaped or you could be square and none of that was being the gene was not interacting with the rest of your body really it was just focused on making your bottom look good you're just the they're just the bottom and so those genes were very successful, and I think they're very popular with people my generation because we'd been struggling, always struggling to figure out how to make your bottom look good and making the maybe classic error of thinking that your bottom starts up under your arms. Mm. And how do I make my bottom look good when I don't have a waist? Or how do I make my bottom look good when I have a high waist or, you know, and all this stuff? And it was just like, oh, no, these genes are low-waisted, so they're not trying to be up in your back and they just start thinking about like how to make your bottom well so now we're into these high-waisted genes and the high-waisted genes are just by their very nature they're including your back and your bottom Mm. Mm. they're including waist in your bottom and there are a lot there's now there's a lot more going on and it's part of it's part of norm core i feel like is that still a thing? Well, I just feel like in general the millenniums are less fashion uh they I mean they they fashion still matters but they're le- they less give a damn. You know, I just I feel like they're a lot more free with you know, you rep whatever you want to rep. I agree. I think there's a lot to admire about the millenniums. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the they, 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 don't give, they don't give an F as they say. They don't give an F, mm-hmm. but, but the high waisted gene, I think, is a is an error. If I can, if if I can just be like a ghost of Christmas past here, mm-hmm. you don't. If if you have a choice, just leave it. Um, unless you are, unless you really know for a fact that you are one of the rare, rare individuals. You know, in le, in the nineteen seventies, you had those Glory Vanderbilt jeans, and they looked bad on everybody except for one out of a thousand people. If you're one of, if you know for a fact you're one of those, like yes, you can wear anything. Yes, but just in general, you're not going to find happiness. I don't think in high waisted jeans. <laughs> I just don't think it's there. <clears throat> but you know, like for instance, if you if you are somebody who's like, if you ever were to say to somebody like, you've got a really big butt, mm-hmm. I feel like you just pulled the pin out of a grenade. 
and you're holding it in your hand and you're also holding with your other hand, you're holding on to the edge of a cliff and your, and your feet are not, your feet are just swinging in the air. Mm-hmm. If you, oh, but the grenade is also tied to a string, which is tied around your neck. So if you let go of the grenade, I was wondering how you, how you pull out the pin. If you only have one hand, do you use your well, teeth you like, a, like a sergeant in a movie? That's right. That's okay. right. You pulled it out. You pulled out the pin, and now you're holding the grenade. If you let go of it in order to grab the cliff wall, okay, then you've got a live grenade tied around your neck. What, what if you're holding onto the cliff by the grenade? I don't think you can. How do you hold onto a cliff with a grenade? By I don't know. I've never been in the situation, but I'm saying it would, it would really work for for the narrative. Is that maybe maybe there's just one little one little bit that got stuck on there? Maybe it's on a root, right? You know what I'm saying? But your your only mm. way, your only survival is going to be keep holding the grenade. That, that's mm-hmm. a lot like that's a lot like talking about somebody's butt. I see you went a different direction with it. I was going in the like you're there's no way out here. Oh, I see, I see. But you were you were saying like you're now you're permanently lodged on the side <laughs> maybe, of this. Cliff. Maybe the cliff is made of grenades. <laughs> Holding a grenade. Maybe if you zoom out far enough, you realize that the whole cliff is a grenade. <laughs> maybe blood. the whole. Mind maybe blown. the world is a maybe just, the universe it's it's not so different than like the when are you expecting gaff oh that's bad i mean but, you know the, the the pattern that runs through all of this i think is like before you open your big mouth make sure you understand what the play is <laughs> right what yeah i mean i have i have had success with the i've had success with the listen within the larger context you have a very small but but within the context of small butts, you have a nice big butt. Do you mm. understand? Yeah, it's nice that you and explained that, it. Nice that you explained it that, like that. You know, that gets... Pull out a PowerPoint. Like, <laughs> if you can get... The thing is, you can't explain it. But if you can create an atmosphere where you are able to say, you have a big butt, but it's within the context of being of having like a very small butt. Well, yeah, but I mean, couldn't you go with something... <clears throat> I don't know. Well, see, it depends on what you're trying Not to... very small. But well, no. <laughs> Not like comically small, not like, like disablingly yeah. small. Yeah, like you are. You have a weirdly small butt, but within that context, it's pretty large. Right. That would I th- just be I mean, baffling. Depending on what you're trying to accomplish, like if part of what you're trying to accomplish is to just pay a pay a compliment and walk away, which could like be kind to of a stranger. Weird. I, don't I don't think you know. can refer to their butt at all. No. I think just talking about people's bodies is dangerous in any I mean, circumstance. Is, I'm talking strictly within the context of somebody that you are romantically involved in, because you should not be commenting on the body of anybody else. Yeah, at oh, all, God. unless you are just unless you are strictly like in a situation where you are either naked with them or on your way to being naked with them. Yeah, and in that case, and it should in that case, I think it should always be only complimentary. That's uh, you know until it's like high waisted jeans. Unless you have a reason, I would stick with complimentary. <laughs> oh, there's no. I don't think there's any way you can make a <laughs> remark about someone else's body that you are sexually <laughs> is, engaged is that, with. Is that supposed to be like that? <laughs> Or yeah, that's going to be considered. <laughs> there's so many ways that you can offer someone constructive criticism, but not in their, not in their body. Not while they're literally naked. One of the oil paintings in my uh, in my mind house, which yeah. is not over the fireplace, it's one of those oil paintings that you're like, do I put this in the bathroom? Where do I put this bath? Where do I put this oil painting? But a, yeah. but a girl in college said to me, it's one of these great compliments. You have a great body. If you just did a few sit-ups. Ooh, wow, that's... <sighs> and I was like, I have a great body, thank you. If I just did a few sit-ups, 
which I know already. I knew that. I knew that I should do some sit-ups. And ah, uh, thank you. You know, like if you consider she that meant, constructive. She meant it. She was a terrible it sounds person, like she, but she, well, yeah, it sounds like consolation. Like she's consoling you. Like, hey, buck up, little guy. Oh you know, no, no, no! It wasn't that. It was that she was trying to make me. You know, like like I have dated oh, a lot of she was women. Fix, she who, was fixing you. That's right. Who are trying to shape me into they they love me. Ninety mm-hmm. percent of who I am is exactly what they want. John it's John is a project. 10%. Yeah. That's right. It's the ten percent that's a project that's very exciting to them. <laughs> and in her case, the ten percent was she was just gonna shape my body a little bit, just craft it a little bit so that it was more to her liking. And that involved a little bit of sit ups. Now at twenty three, I had a dad bod and at 48, I have pretty much exactly the same dad bod. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I mean, I'm not one of those 48-year-olds that still has a flat stomach, but it's because I never had a flat stomach. Not yeah, a single you're, you're, time you're, in my you, life. It's just you doing you. Yeah, that's right. I'm doing me. I think you but can I tell somebody that they. That. I think you can tell somebody that they have a cute butt. A cute, uh, again, they'd better be somebody you're dating. I do not think you can say that to someone on the bus. I don't or talk, I don't talk about bodies at all, John, with anybody oh. ever. No. No, 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 this no, is no, all no, just no, speculative. No. I could not imagine saying any of these words to, to people. To like the to the to your secretary. <laughs> to my secretary. <laughs> at your office. <laughs> Janice. No. Janice, come here. Do a twirl. Janice, Give me a yeah. twirl. <laughs> Working nine to five. You have kind of a you have kind of a big ass, Janice. <laughs> I mean, within the context of having a small ass, get, you have a big get, one. Get back to that dictation. <laughs> if someone said to me, "You have a cute butt," and and, and I have heard it over the years, mm-hmm. but not. I, I was waiting times. for you to work that in. I had a feeling that was coming. That, that that's one of yeah, your smaller not, oil paintings. But not enough times that I believe it. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if it was something that was said universally. I would be like, hmm, that's one of the things that I know about myself. Like, universally, women have said that I have good legs. <laughs> Every woman I've ever been. Is that right? Yeah, and so I believe it. Uh-huh. Because, because <clears throat> unbidden, yeah. it's just one of those offhanded comments like, you know what? You have good legs. I've heard that I, I, I feel like you could think really about is. you could think about your life and what to believe in your life a little bit like like my daughter was recently looking at some of my old yearbooks and from uh, like like junior high and so many of the things people wrote in my yearbook are nearly identical and taken as a whole they form a certain truth that I could that choose stay, I could choose not stay sweet well <laughs> I could choose not well see stay sweet even that yeah. you get enough of those that means something. Like it's that's not people filling up a whole page with that time we made out at the roller rink. Most of them, right. m- many of them, are uh, you're you're weird but cool. You're weird. Oh, you're weird but cool. You're weird but nice. You're weird but smart. And the mm-hmm. thing is, the the consistency to to many of these remarks is that I am weird. That is the, the <laughs> predominant characteristic. If you were to put these into Excel, what would emerge is that in, when I was 14, I was weird and everyone said so, right? So in that case, I feel like that is whether I like that or not, or feel that's distinctive or not. The point is, that's the people speaking. I heard that enough. Now, nobody <laughs> said in there, 
uh, you know, and, and you have sexy legs. That was never mm-hmm. in there. And you have nice legs. Right? Yeah. I, I could choose that. Again, I don't know if it's a synecdoche or a metonymy or making things up, but I could just choose to believe that about myself. But I, I have not mm-hmm. heard that often enough that, that I think it's meaningful. But you have. You've heard about your legs. If you look at my yearbook, I think that if I think what you would put together over the over all the comments, uh, it would be um, you were a bastard to me for four years, but for some reason everyone likes you still. Good luck. And this continues now on Facebook, right? Don't you still get remarks from people who are like, "God, you're still such an asshole." Yeah, you were absolutely terrible to me, but for some reason I could never hate you. That. This is very confusing. I hope I never see you again, but I also wish you well. Um, did you ever give that girl a license plate back? Yeah, I did. We're friends now. <laughs> um, I feel like when I first met you and when I would look at pictures of you, particularly pictures of you when you were in college, I my feeling was that Merlin Mann was a very handsome guy. You know, I, I, you have, I've heard several of my friends have said this. I don't I don't see it. I think I think. But yeah, oh, I appreciate you, you saying that. That was your impression at the time. Uh, well, you know, the thing is, you have, I feel like you've aged well. You have a kind oh, of, you. Uh, you know, you have aged into a very, like, appropriately interesting-looking middle-aged man. It's tough, because um, the things you know, that got, make people... You have not fallen apart, as they oh, say. Oh, well, you know, there's always time. Uh, you've, like, become yeah. more intensely... i become like more, you me, are, more I, me. If I were casting a catalog, yeah. a modeling session, like, you'd be one of the type of people that I would think, like, could sell, uh, sell things still just with your face. Wow. And that's not, you know, a lot of people, like, their they, their face falls apart. Um, and it's just, it's just that God... It's just what God chooses. You know, it's not like, it's not that for any, for any particular reason. But I always felt like you were handsome and did not believe it, Mm. did not know it or believe it such that you never really capitalized on your handsomeness. You know, it wasn't a big... Is this your, is this your sit up statement for me? Like I I could have been good looking if I clean myself up a little bit probably, right? No, 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 it wasn't that at all because you know, I like, I think dirty is handsome. No, it was that you didn't believe that you were handsome. So you never exploited it. You never went into a situation where you where you where you said, "Well, I'm handsome, so I'm gonna no. I'm gonna pull this off because I'm handsome, right?" Yeah. You always you always carried yourself as though the last thing you were the last thing you believed was that you were handsome, or at least it wasn't like a primary way I, you that's were a, That's a good conclusion. Yeah. 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 Um, and hmm. I think. For me, I did not think I was handsome. It was clear I wasn't. I was uh, because I was under, I was undercooked. But at a certain point, <laughs> I feel like a like, scallop. <laughs> I did. But at a certain point, I think I grew into my looks enough that now I bamboozle people because I have, you know, you're like, charismatic. Yeah, charismatic, right? Which is, you know, which is this, which is a, another kind of awful comment. No, when you have, it a, comes you have a really, really nice personality. Yeah, you exactly. make a lot of your own clothes. Good cook. <laughs> exactly, exactly. This is the thing, type of thing that my friends' parents said to me in high school. You know, you're going to grow into your looks. You're, you're, you're very handsome. Ugh. In the sense that, it, as an adult, you will be handsome. The things people say to other people. Yeah, where you're just like, hmm. Yeah, All right. well, just well, trying I to be helpful. Preferred, I would have preferred to be like cute in high school, but I guess that wasn't what that wasn't my fate. I, I so we played a show the other day. And yeah, I want to ask guys, you about this. 
three guys from my high school showed up. And, you know, three guys that had never seen me play. Actually, one guy wasn't from my high school. He was from my ski team. But he was, you know, within Anchorage, if you were on the ski team, by which I mean um, initially the Alaska Mighty Mites, and then ultimately graduate to the Alaska Junior Racers. Mm. Uh, it was not a ski team in the sense that we, it wasn't like a high school ski team where you competed against other ski teams. It was a ski club, a ski culture where you competed against one another. And then the great ones went on to compete nationally and then internationally. It was like a, it was like a, uh, like a, like a farm club for the, for the world. Uh, and I think now in Alaska, the high schools have ski teams, downhill ski teams I'm talking about. They always had cross-country teams that competed against each other. But now I think they have downhill teams. And it might be a club sport, like a, like a what, intramural sport. But, yeah. but so one of the guys from the ski team who went to a different high school, but he was part of our larger gang because he because we were all skiers together. So these three guys came to my came to my uh, my rock show, and the, in particular, the one that I knew from ski club that was not from my high school. He looks exactly the same. He looks the same as he did when he was sixteen. We're, and we're reaching an age where that that's strange now when that happens. It's, it's, it's but I mean he looks like a man. He mm-hmm. doesn't. He's not like a, he doesn't have a, like a like a sweet face or something. He looks like a full grown adult. Uh, but he looks he looks the same. He would be instantly identifiable as himself in a way that a lot of people my age aren't. A lot of people I see that are my age, and I'm like, I know you, don't I? And they're like, Yes, we know each other very well. And then I'm like, oh, It's you, hi. You know, oh. like they've changed considerably. Mm-hmm. He just looked exactly like himself. And what's amazing is that of everybody I know. He has created exactly the Alaska life. He's a doctor. And I grew up in a neighborhood that was close to the hospital and the college. And most of my friends' parents were doctors. And a lot of my friends went on to become doctors, but they all moved out of Alaska, right? Mm. So they're a doctor here, they're a doctor there, they're a doctor there. Okay. And they're living some other doctor life, some Bellingham doctor life or some, you know, California doctor life. But he's a doctor. He has an airplane, which he uses all the time, (laughs) a ski plane in the winter and a float plane in the summer, which is very Alaska thing to do. And he uses that airplane both to, or I'm sorry, he uses it to hunt. Mm -hmm. And so he'll post pictures on Facebook of like, we just went out and shot this giant elk or this mountain sheep or whatever that is that they're they're just out like hunting as part of one of the things that they do as Alaskans or they fly in somewhere and catch giant king salmon wow. but they they also put skis on it and fly way up on the side of mountains and everybody jumps out and you know, and my friend then flies the airplane down to the bottom of the mountain, and everybody skis down the mountain, and then gets back in the airplane and fly back up and land on the glacier and do it again. 
Like this is the life that he is providing for his children. His teenage kids are like, let's go skiing, dad. And they get in the airplane and they fly up and land on a glacier and ski down. Like it's a, it's so Alaskan. It just blows me away how completely successfully he has created this thing that seems almost, almost fantastical to me now, having lived in Seattle uh, as long as I have, but was exactly kind of what that was the environment I grew up in, right? Your friend's dad had a plane. He flew you up to their lake cabin, and then you went water skiing, and then he would fly you up on the mountain and drop. I mean, it's just like, what kind of universe? Mm-hmm. Somebody sent me a, a link to a video the other day about this young woman who's like a – she's a young mother now. And she'd been an alpine guide on Mount McKinley for many, many years. And then after she had her daughter, she felt like being an alpinist was no longer, I know, was no longer a safe job because she had a, she had a little daughter. And every time you go up on the mountain, you risk dying. It's just the nature of going up on the mountain. The mountain decides whether you get down or not. And so... Up until that point, she'd been living a life where every time, you know, her job was to go up on the side of the mountain and try to keep these people that are paying her from dying. And also, as a, you know, as a corollary to that, try to keep herself from dying. But now she's a mom and that doesn't feel right. So she decided that she was going to transfer her energy into becoming a bush pilot to fly the climbers up and land them on the mountain. And her description of it, why it's way better is like, well, every night I get to come home and sleep in my own bed. Every morning I get to be up at 14,000 feet on the side of this mountain. Wow. uh, You know, like dropping climbers off up there. And then I get to fly home and go to bed in my little house in Talkeetna. And I was watching this and just like, Jesus, this is, this is totally another version of this same weird Alaskan life. But when I was a kid, it was always the grownups doing it. Now I'm watching this video. This, to me, she still reads as a young woman, right? She's younger than I am. Mm-hmm. She's like a young mother, and she and she's flying this to Haviland Beaver and landing it on the side of the freaking mountain. And she's flying with her little daughter. It's super cute. Like so there's a shot where they're in a they're in a a little cub and they're taking off, and her little four year old is in the back seat, like the sun is in my eyes. <laughs> and one of the things about being in an airplane is that. Uh, there aren't in a small plane that you don't have window shades. Mm-hmm. You want a lot of windows because you want to be able to look out and make sure you're not going to fly into anything. And the way that you're like, just by the nature of it, you're up in the sky. There's no trees shading you and the sun can come into a little plane and it's just really blinding. My dad used to fly with two sets of sunglasses he would have his sunglasses on, and then it would then the sun would just be like, ah, and he'd put another part, another pair of sunglasses. Wow. On. Double sunglass. Anyway, so I'm watching this video and I'm just like, fucking God, Alaska. There's a part of me that is there's a part of me that really feels like I have done a poor job because I'm not a bush pilot. It's the it's the weirdest thing. That's, I don't uh, want to be. A, I hadn't uh, expected that. That's that's very interesting. 
yeah, it just feels weird. It feels weird to watch those videos and be like, oh, my pals are up there just, you know, flying up to get a burger in Tall Keaton. Well, it's, got anyway, a very, it's nice. very muscular. It sounds like a very muscular uh, lifestyle. It doesn't feel like that to them because they they feel like the plane is a necessary tool. Mm-hmm. It's just like learning to drive a car. If you want to get up there where things are interesting, then that's what you need. And, of course, you want to get up where things are interesting because once you've skied up in the glacier, why do you want to go ride the chairlift? I mean, the only reason you ride the chairlift is because you do that Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. But if you have all day, why not fire the plane up and go get the real pow pow? You go right. I guess. Uh, no, yeah. I mean it's 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 so utterly foreign to me. I mean, all these different yeah. modes of transportation and leaving the house so often it's it's all very very foreign to me. Yeah, leaving the house with. The expectation that all day long you're going to be putting in effort. It's not easy to get the plane going and get it up into the and fly up into the mountains. Like it's tough. It's just so much, so much danger. My gosh, yeah. danger. That's but right. You, okay, so let's explore this then. You so you feel like you, sh- you maybe should have been a bush pilot. No, because if I had wanted to be a bush pilot, I I absolutely could have. You know, I I stood at the. I stood at the uh, crossroads. Mm-hmm. I, I I looked at the the road uh, bending off into the wood, and then took the other as just as fair. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was perfectly positioned to be a bush pilot, and I just felt like, well, yeah. Or I could go ride freight trains. Yeah, and the riding freight trains felt more interesting. Because being a bush pilot felt somewhat mundane, just like going to medical school did. Mm -hmm. And then having gone and ridden freight trains for a couple of years, then I followed, uh, then I went where the day took me and ended up where I am. Because, I, you know, honestly, Merlin, I went where the day took me. You went where the day took you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I never had a plan. I don't know if you did. Did you have a plan? Uh, I mean, I had... I had notions, but I never had a plan. But I think the day, the day is a very important unit for you. Yeah. The day, the day is, there's important patterns to the day in your life. Things like what is the uniform of the day, right? You've, you've got mm, these things right. that like reflect like, you know, it might be how you slept last night. Like, what, you know, where do you have to be? The day seems, I'm not saying you think merely in days, but the, the day is a very significant uh, quantity of time for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I approach each day as though it is a new, well, yeah, each day is new. I didn't, so for instance, yesterday, my plan for today was to do this podcast with you. That was the thing, that was the tent pole. Yeah. For the first, that was the reason I was going to get up in the morning, was to do this podcast. And then after this, I immediately had Immediately, my notion of the rest of the day became very vague. It was like, I got to get up. I got to do the podcast with Merlin. Now, after I'm done doing the podcast with Merlin, do I get dressed? Well, we'll we'll, we'll figure that out when we get there. Mm. Right? But like, also, isn't that governed partly by, like, what are you getting dressed for? Yeah. Right? That's going to heavily... I mean, I mean, are you going to wear, like, something where you could go out into the bush? Um, you know, but do is, I even need to? 
if I don't need to get dressed, why go through the whole rigmarole? That's true. Am I going to play guitar tomorrow? Could be. That's a that's a pretty good idea. Put on your guitar pants. Maybe. No, no, no. You don't need pants for a guitar. Is that sanitary? Do you put oh, down sure. a napkin or something? The thing is, I'm not going to... That guitar, it's not like I'm going to hand it to somebody else sometime and be like, here, play my play the guitar that I was playing by my by my nakedness. <laughs> but yeah, I, <laughs> I do feel like a lot of people in life had not just like more of a plan than I did, but that they had a real plan that they had a plan. This is why I was uh, I was trying to differentiate between like having a guess or a reckon. There were people who really had a plan. Um and by by which like we're talking about here like you're the red-haired girl and like going to, you know, medical school and stuff. People where there are dependencies to what you're going to do, there's time commitment, there is uh stick-to-itiveness and grit. And with those kinds of people, a funny side effect is that those are often the kind of people that if the plan goes wrong, they very quickly have another plan they're ready to stick to. I think well, there there are plan people, but but sure. good plan people are executing on the plan, not merely ruminating about the plan. That's the difference between them and me. I feel like the danger for me of a plan was always that well the you know the plan can go sideways right away. So like, you know, if you want to make God laugh, right? Woody Allen's famous line: "If you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans." It's a pretty good assessment of where. I come from, although you have to look at Woody Allen's accomplishments and say, like, well, he had a plan, or at least he had multiple plans. Every time he started a new film, it must have been a new plan. But I am am maybe one of the more planless, and, and I come up against people with a plan all the time. People ask me questions that suggest that they think that I had a plan or that I have one now. Oh, it's hard I mean, to answer. The, sim- the simplest question that people ask you is like, well, what do you want? <laughs> and it presumes that I really want anything or that I have a particular interest in one or another outcome. Right. And that is a that's a weird presupposition because if today I followed the day where it took me and it ended up that by the end of the day something had something had arrived in my life where it made sense for me to move to Ankara, Turkey. I would be in I if it made sense for me to do, mm-hmm. then that would that then that has its own logic and I would be making preparations to move to Ankara. Uh because it doesn't conflict with a plan that I have already. I see, I see. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there are a lot of people that if at the end of the day it made sense for them to move to Ankara, they would say, what? No. I mean, it doesn't make sense. That conflicts, even though it that makes, conflicts with my plan. It makes, it conflicts with the plan. <clears throat> yeah. That's right. And and um, the only reason I haven't made it uh, made uh, uh, like the decision to move to Turkey at any point in my life is that at the end of every day it never made sense. and I, uh, And I never made it my plan. But it is it's very different because I'm because confronted with the question, what do you want? My answer is always like the best or most sensible option of those presented. (laughs) And that doesn't satisfy. There's all all kinds of parts to it. I mean, I'm I'm projecting here, uh, which is all I really can do. But I think, again, it's important to distinguish between a plan, which has several aspects to it that are important. And then versus having something like a. 
a lightly structured sense of hope about how things will go that feels like a plan, but it's not really a plan. That's a, that's an intransitive plan. Like where you're kind of like mostly hoping things turn out a certain way. If I stay at this job long enough, surely I will make more money and get promoted. That's a, maybe a silly example, but I think it's a common example, right? Like I get the security of having a job plus it just seems reasonable that I will move up and make more money here. Well, that's not, that's not exactly a plan. If, if your plan requires you not changing very much or doing things by a certain time, it's not really a plan. It's, it's, I mean, it's just doing stuff. Yeah. I, I feel like you are really, you got to the core of it really fast. And I think what it, this is a weird thing I've discovered just very recently in, in like examining the choices that I make and it maybe relies on optimism. Like I never would have thought of myself as optimistic because I, because I'm, you know, I, I trend toward thinking darkly, thinking darkly about myself, thinking darkly about the, you know, the contemporary world, mm-hmm. thinking darkly about human interaction with one another. Like I'm, I'm, I tend to be not misanthropic, but certainly I have my suspicions about other people. You're human agnostic, (laughs) a human agnostic, right? I'm just, you know, like life is definitely somewhat of a scramble and I embrace it. But what I, what I've realized recently is that I am an optimist in that I wake up every morning and assume everything is going to sort of just roll. Like when I get in the car and start the engine and imagine making the trip to wherever it is that I'm I'm going. I don't have was that a what was that little toot? <laughs> was that little toot from your end. You probably didn't hear that. That was the train going by and uh, they didn't like what somebody was doing on the road, so so they gave a little toot. Uh, oh, sometimes they give a little toot, toot. out front. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> ain't, ain't no mic that's gonna prevent that from showing up. <laughs> but, but so in but your I, model I, the day sort of unwinds the way that it does. You've got a general yeah. trajectory through the day. Well, I, I mean, I know that I have to be certain places at certain times. That's, but that's I what assume... I have. My, my, my planning consists of when I have to be somewhere at a certain time, mostly. Yeah. But I, I'm operating on the assumption that I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to drive to where I'm going. And that drive is going to be largely event-free. I don't assume someone is going to cut me off. I'm not afraid that I'm going to get into a crash. I don't worry <laughs> about getting there, you know, like, late. I'm not worried about getting lost. You know, all of those anxieties about what's going to happen in the in the immediate future and in the long-term future i just don't have Mm -hmm. i assume that everything's probably going to roll and that i'm realizing now is actually a kind of optimism that i bring to to events i assume you know when people like People say, uh, when my daughter was born, uh, her mother said, like, it's going to cost her a million dollars a year to go to college. What are we going to do? We, we should have been saving money this whole time. And, my, and I was just stunned by this because my feeling was, well, when she needs to go to college, when it's time to go to college, it'll be fine. She'll go to college. There'll be some solution to the problem. And that has, that has been my attitude throughout my entire life. And, and, and it is, you know, like... I know that there are listeners right now who love who, who love it love love that 
I have arrived here where I can now make a statement about privilege. Mm -hmm. And now having made that statement, like it is also a, a like, and, and maybe my optimism is also a function of, of privilege because that is the lens through which a lot of people want to look at everything now. But I, I also feel like there are a lot of people whose nature, like they have just as much privilege as I do in the world, but their nature compels them to be anxious about all these things that they can't control, the drive, the other drivers, the whether or not they're, you know, whether or not things are going to go well all day. They're anxious about them. And that anxiety makes choices for them. And they're, uh, and, and so the plan helps alleviate that anxiety because they know, you know, that, that there are steps to follow. Um, and if the, if something goes sideways, you know, you just get, get on to the next step. You follow the, you follow the plan. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm, I am at liberty and a lot of the liberty, I guess that, that I have or that people perceive in me is, I think rooted in, in that like spiritual confidence that it's going to turn out. Uh, even if I have a heart attack and die tomorrow, that's fine. It's a, it's all going to work out. My daughter's going to be fine. Somebody's going to have to go through all this stuff, but that's, I mean, it'll probably be my mom and she'll just put it all into the dumpster. Yeah. Just bin it all. Yeah. My twenty, my twenty-five pairs of vintage Levi's that have holes in the knees. She doesn't see the value in them. You have nice legs. She doesn't recognize that. <laughs> she doesn't recognize that there's a lot of value there, and that's fine. Yeah, um, I sometimes wonder if the absence of anxiety feels like optimism. We're like, you know, it's funny because, uh -huh. like, you know, we tend to think in these sort of. Um, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, uh, Hegelian, I guess, sorts of ways. I don't know. Like, we're trying to always see, like, the two sides, this bicameral approach to life. And are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? And it's like, well, you know, that's really very, very general, you know? But as somebody who is anxious about lots of things, I, I sometimes wonder if, to repeat myself, if, if, what, if not having anxiety is what optimism feels like. Yeah, or maybe there isn't a distinction between those things. Well, there's a certain kind of, and I'm sorry to keep using this this word that is a term of art, and I, I'm not trying to be ableist, uh, but um, there is a certain kind of mania to optimism that I'm very suspicious of. Mm -hmm. Like, people who are too optimistic or people who are too happy are very suspicious to me. They yeah. just seem like they're up to something, or they're just not wired right. Like, how are you like this? All the t and there are some people who are just charming, and that's just their, their personality, and they're not somebody who, you know, again, the absence of something makes you seem like it's a thing. Like, just people who don't bitch about everything, people who aren't snarky, people who don't talk behind other people's backs and stuff like that, you know. Um, I mean, that's, that's a nice, you know, kind of a person. I don't know if that makes them necessarily an optimist, but so I guess one version of optimism is that you tend to see the positive side of a situation that you tend to assume that things will go well rather than not, that you have a, uh, a kind of rosy prospect about a given situation or the future in general. Yeah. And all the same is true and opposite of pessimism. I mean, is that roughly fair to say? Um, Pessimist, 
uh, tends to look at uh, to pick nits with the negative side of things. They tend to assume that given all the things being equal, things will probably get worse. Yeah, no, that's that uh, that doesn't describe me at all. It's the uh, it's the other thing. Yeah, yeah. and I, but I but I'm not a Pollyanna, right? I but mean, like, what I, if you have I, neither? Like, what if or what if you have it in like a? I don't know. I just this kinds of like uh, polar things are so. Um, it's such a blunt instrument, right? It I mean, is, but it's it's very. I mean, you, there there needs to be a way to describe. Um. Because because it's because it's one of those like do, do, is the green that you see the same green that I see, right? Um, you know, if you're having a conversation with somebody about something that you're undertaking, and they honestly feel like the chances of it failing are much greater than the chances of it succeeding, and you feel the opposite, and those are just sort of native feelings, not based on the actual facts of the of the moment, but rather the intrinsic interpretation of what those facts mean you know like we don't have enough money to do this but it's going to be fine we'll find the money or uh, we don't have of, enough I'm money something to do like this. maybe if you're a um entrepreneurial type and you're somebody who wants to start a you know theoretically potentially very profitable high value company in some kind of an industry that is risky or costly to get into but if you're that sort of person and you decide to start a company like that and then hew to a developing but still very well thought out plan, like if you have a plan for what you're going to do, like, no, does that make you an optimist or a pessimist? Because every, people, everybody says, well, obviously that person's an optimist because they think they're going to be that rare person who's able to pull off success in this thing that's very difficult to do. And I would say that another person might say, well, no, they're probably a pessimist because they realize that in order to get the things they want, they have to have a contingency plan and risk management that gets them where they want to go without assuming that everything will go perfect. So I don't know if either one of those labels really fits in that situation. Um, I don't know. I mean, I... There are companies, right, that that begin that process, and then somewhere down the road, in their development, they realize that what the product, what they thought the product was, isn't the product. Right. What they discover is that the thing that they were making in order to make the product was the actual product, and in order to be that flexible, um, I think you do have to be very i think you have to have a rough plan and not a strict plan and that and that flexibility which isn't true of most startups i guess is the thing that that um you know would describe my approach which is like you get in there and it's when we were making you know it, thought we were making straw hats but it turns out we're making the framework to make straw hats because that's what the world really needs, you know, we, we, now we can sell that. Right. And that's interesting. Not being, but right? yeah, like, not being so, uh, so wrapped up in your plan that you lose track of not only like whether it's working the way you expect it, but that, you know, uh, there are things that you should be picking up about how to, as they say, pivot what you're doing. Yeah. And I think, I think it is a question of, is your plan something that you put in place in order to dispel fear or is your plan a thing that you put in place in order to um, limit uh, either li either put like artificial limitations on what you're doing in order to keep focused 
or limit the amount of chaos that can intrude. But I really do think there's a difference because, because uh, you know, there are a lot of plans out there that are just to shore up um, the number of, you know, of different, like, paralyzing anxieties, right? <laughs> like, like, right. Um, and to like, and, like almost like a form of OCD a little bit. Yeah. Like I've got this, I've got a plan and therefore like it, you know, I cannot be, I don't, I cannot know all the things that are going to happen, but I know that I'm not going to get, get de- derailed this way because I have a plan to, to account for it. And my problem being planless is that I'm derailed by I mean, I'm literally derailed by everything. <laughs> literally. I, I, I often get to the door of my own room, reach for the doorknob, and then take another look at the doorknob and go, huh, interesting. I never in all the years noticed that about this doorknob. And then I, then my next thought is, I should get a tool and start to work on that doorknob. I can't and believe you're saying of- this, because just this morning, I was putting my shoes on, I was sitting on the side of my bed, and I noticed a part of my house I never noticed before. And I, I became a little bit entranced because I'd never paid any attention to the area between where these two doors are. And I was just looking at it and think, I've never really looked at this. I've never really looked at the nails in the uh, paneling. I've never really noticed, like, uh, you know, uh, and I felt it felt very strange. It felt like something from Westworld. You know, uh-huh. we're like, you know, it doesn't look like anything to me. Like I suddenly looked and I went, hey, this is a very minor part of my house that I've never given any thought to. And Has that's... that gnome door always been there? <laughs> Are there gnomes coming in and out? And then a gnome uh, kind of I doubt my hat. own perception so much. Now, there's, a, there's a quote that I have quoted many, many times, and I just took the time to actually look it up, and I will now provide it in full. Mm-hmm. Uh, for once, this is actually uh, a quote that is an actual thing that was actually said by an actual person. It was not Mark Twain. This is... Um, uh, was it, I, it was Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, you got uh, Carl Sandburg. No, this is uh, Eisenhower in 1957. Um, I tell the story to illustrate the truth of the statement I heard long ago in the army. Plans are worthless, but planning is everything. There's a very great distinction because when you are planning for an emergency, you must start with this one thing. The very definition of emergency is that it is unexpected. Therefore, it is not going to happen in the way that you are planning. Plans are worthless, but planning is everything. What a great quote. Yeah. Yes, and that is what's missing for me. I do not have plans, and that is what makes me feel that I'm at liberty. I think it's more complicated than that. I think you're more complicated. You're more complicated than that, because it it isn't that you lack a plan, it seems to me, but you have a gnawing sensation that you're not sure what you want that destination to be to even plan for. Yeah. And right. if that, which, which, if true, <laughs> I sympathize. <laughs> you can't, you well, can't just have a plan to just, you know. Well, you could. I mean, you could sit around and move, you know, Mick Thomas uh, train tracks all day long. But like ordinarily, you would think of a plan as something that you execute in the service of a given goal over time with a given budget. At least as a project manager, that manager, that's how I would think about it. Yeah. Well, so for instance, about five years ago, six years ago, I was standing around with my mom who's very plan oriented. And she said, look, here's a plan for you. Why don't you, why don't you just decide to make a million dollars? Like you have made money in bursts before that in ways that suggest that you would be able to make a million dollars if you set your mind to it, because you do, you throw some stuff off 
and then some money comes and then you live on it for a while. And then when it runs out, you're like, oh, shit, I should do something. And you do something else. You toss something else off and then, you know, and money comes in for a while. But what if you decided that your number one plan was just to make one million dollars? That's it. Like you would just do whatever it took to do this, to make this one million dollars. And then you would have one million dollars. And after that, you could say that that was the goal you had accomplished and you could do whatever the hell you wanted. But you would have this million dollars. And I said, huh, interesting. And I went around and I chewed on that for a while. Like, that seems like a, that is an example of a plan that doesn't restrict me very much. You know, it it just gives me a reason. Is that a plan or a goal? I guess it's a goal. I guess it's a goal. Uh, like, the, is the, our goal might be to uh, land a uh, man on the moon and bring him home safely within the next nine years. That's a goal, but the plan to get that to happen is, is a pretty different animal. Yeah, right. And, but, the, but, but the goal would then, would then necessitate various plans, right? I would have to <laughs> yeah, well, I do mean, this. A lot, of, a lot of ins, a lot of outs, a lot of what have you. <laughs> 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 you, you might have to you, if you want to make a million dollars you're probably going to have to do some things yeah. you know again you got to move it's like having a baby when you're 40 you're gonna have to move some things around yeah upstairs downstairs <laughs> yeah you change a little you bit gotta... about your about your budgeting and invoicing system you figure out a way to make a million dollars you start planning the things mm-hmm. that you're going to buy right i mean <laughs> there's a lot of pieces you'd probably want to write it down maybe get a legal pad I think I think you would. I mean, I think in my case, what what she was trying to do is she said, "You've got all these projects, but the, all you have is the the only reason you would complete any one of those projects right now is just to have the satisfaction of having completed a project, and yet you get it seems like equal satisfaction by just staring at a doorknob all day." Like, it doesn't seem to be more gratifying to you to complete a record album than it does to just sit with the, like, the other day I got down on my uh, hands and knees at my dishwasher, and uh, I took two toothpicks, and I cleaned all the little nozzles of my dishwasher out uh, with the two toothpicks. I was there for, you know, for half the day, just humming along, putt, putt, putt. That sounds sounds very meditative. Yeah, I was making. I was having success. I was yeah. successfully clean. The dishwasher works better now. Nice. And I and I felt like using the toothpicks as tools was also like this is fun. I'm that's enjoying an innovation. this. I, that's a, that's a, that's a thought technology. Yeah, I could have found other tools, but these are the tools that I found. Uh, you go to war with the tools you have. Yes, not the tools you want. As Abraham Lincoln that said that. <laughs> and she said, you know, she said if 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 completing like a large scale project doesn't really scratch any itch in you that's any different than just waking up in the morning and saying, you know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to wear all pink. Uh, she said, you'll never get any of these things done. What if the what if the overarching thing was not finish this project for its own sake, but finish this project as part of this larger project, very simple one-sentence project, make a million dollars. Right. And and it was the first kind of over-the-top overlay uh, that I'd had in a long, long time. And I think the only other one that I ever had was one that I got when I was 16 or something that was just like, be famous. 
<laughs> that's big, a very good... big man on campus. <laughs> that's right. Big man on campus. Put you wrote it up you're there. right on the blotter. <laughs> wrote, it, wrote it on the blotter. And then everything I did that year was under this, like, does this help me be the big man on campus? Yeah, I think it does. Like, every, I mean, even sitting and monkeying with this doorknob is part of that, I guess. <laughs> but since that time, I didn't, I never had another, like, uh, I never had another tall flag. I just had a I just had a forest of small flags. Hmm. So I have not still fully embraced the like, hmm, make a million dollars, a million of them. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a lot of dollars. It's a it's a very clear metric. Yeah. And and the reason my mom said a million dollars is that she has this she has this so she had this lifelong thing. She said to me at one point, your father spent his whole life thinking that success was to have $50,000 in the bank. If you had $50,000, and $50,000 meant a lot, something else in 1965. And that you were were paid up on everything, and that that was free and clear. Yeah. Yep, you had $50,000 in the bank, and if you had that, it was smooth sailing from then on. And she said in his entire life, he never, ever, ever had $50,000 in the bank. And he just couldn't put it together because as soon as he had some money in the bank, he spent it on something. He was right. like, oh, shit, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy a boat or whatever. And it was just like, no, just stop. Right. Just keep doing your $50,000 in the bank thing. And so in my mom's mind, if you had a million, million dollars and didn't tell a soul, you wouldn't say nothing about it to no one because as soon as they see it, their your money gets stolen. Mm. No, her idea was that if you had a million dollars, you could live on the interest. Sure. You, you become like right. your own uh, endowment. Yeah. You get 5% interest. You get $50,000 a year in free money. And then that becomes like the fear foundation. And so you never touch the you never touch the million dollars. You just get this steady sort of 5 6% interest, you, you know, and... and I think she originally conceived of this plan back when there was like the interest rate was 14%. Right. Get yourself like, a certificate oh, of deposit. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. You know, you buy some bonds. Get some T-bills, whatever those are. <laughs> and and through and in her logic in her mind, if you had 1 million dollars, which to a lot of people nowadays um even people that do not have anywhere close to any of that kind of money, but but when we imagine being wealthy, yeah, a million dollars doesn't seem like wealthy now. It's you know there you can't buy a house in Seattle for less than six hundred thousand dollars now. Yep. But one million dollars actually represents like you could live on that the rest of your life, or it could it could certainly keep you comfortable Somewhere. the rest of your life. Somewhere. Somewhere. Right. I mean, certainly if you move to Thailand or something. Thailand. Yeah. But even living in even. If I had a million dollars, if I made it in a burst, I could continue to do this, make podcasts and put out records every 10 years. Um, I would have to, I would have to put out a record, I think, in order to accomplish making a million dollars. That should be, be okay, you write that down, put put that in the legal pad. That should be part of the plan. Make a record. That's part of the plan. Make a record Mm -hmm. and and find a way, you know, Ted Leo just got $160,000 in a Kickstarter for his record, which I I kickstarted that. Yeah, as far as I, I did, can uh, tell, I did uh, the the Jonathan thing too. 
his record's already done. He made it at home. Like the $160,000 is part of putting the record out. And it's also just like paying him for the record. This is a distinction it, it, I, I had not heard put this. I'm so out of the loop. I hadn't heard this distinction made until this week. Who was talking about this? Oh, hello, Internet podcast. Um, talking about the difference between, and I, I forgive me if I'm uh, mangling this, but basically the distinction between being a consumer of the product and a funder of the production, which I think is such an interesting distinction. Because, like, obviously, historically, you've been, you've voted with your wallet by buying the finished product, but that the, um, the model today is much more along the lines of, well, maybe a much smaller but more generous group of people, it is hoped, will fund the production of whatever it is you want to make. That's where you get into stuff like Patreon and things like that. Yeah, isn't, that isn't that kind of I mean, interesting? I mean, I, that sounds dumb and obvious, but like, that's a pretty different distinction rather than going, well, gosh, I sure hope the economy for how you get paid for streaming vastly improves in the next 10 years. <laughs> I mean, it's completely novel to us, but when I look at the money that I made from any given album, just in terms of album sales, like I was thinking, you know, I, we played this show the other day, which was a fun show. And inevitably, as you as, as you do, you put something like that on the Internet and then you get 500 comments from people like, come play Essen, Germany. Right. It's been years since it's been years <laughs> since you played fucking, you know, uh, like <laughs> Worms Gap, it's, it West comes Virginia. From, it comes from <laughs> it comes from such a nice and such a generous place. But it's still all I can do not to respond to that with a little bit of snark, not to be mean, because and that's why I don't say it. I don't want to be mean. But when I say, "Hey, we're having a comic meetup," you know, uh, near my house in uh, on this thus and such day, and people say, "Oh, you should come to Worms Bottom, West Virginia, and do that here." <laughs> Like, well, I should do a lot of things. Sure, yeah. I'll, call, I'll come to Vspotten. I'll do, <laughs> I'll do up a uh, dust dust comic uh, client of dust meetup. Sure, I'll do that. Let me just put that on my card. <laughs> let me just Stuff let me just get some, yeah yeah. Let me just let me get somebody else to take care of my daughter every afternoon for the next ten days. Oh, I'll just have my wife do that. She she well, has a big lady job where she goes to an office. I, but I'll say, honey, here's the thing. So I'm wanted. I've received the Merlin signal has been shot into the Gotham City sky. I I am now needed in Wiesbaden. Yep. <laughs> so of course you don't say that except here amongst friends. But no, I mean like you know, you know what? Here's the thing. Anybody who wants us to do this podcast where they live, we will totally do that. <laughs> There's only one mm-hmm. thing that we ask. <laughs> That's right. That we not That's go exactly into right. debt in order to do it. It's yeah, not right. super complicated. Well, and that is what that's what's crazy. If I look at the money of because I toured extensively, right? And there were a lot and a lot of times I did go to Wiesbaden and then came home at the end of 6 weeks and after I paid everybody, I had made $2,000. Right. And it was like, ah, you know, that you're is like, a terrible you, you become feeling. your own company store, right? You're paying and, for and, all the infrastructure of doing all that. You're, you're funding it out of your pocket up front, hoping nothing goes wrong, hoping the van doesn't explode. Right. 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 And, and you're doing it or you're doing it because the promise is, you know, you are being promised by a uh you know by a system that if you do that enough 
that you, the word will get out and you will and then the and then you will make one million dollars. But what, it's probably it, it's probably good in life to not count on too many promises that come to you via a system. <laughs> a system, right? right? So for six years, I went out and I went to Munster and I went to um, Dresden and I played my songs for the people in those places that came to hear them. And we had a wonderful time together and it was awesome. And I ate a lot of pretzels and I ate a lot of, uh, of sausages with mustard on them. Mm. And I made really good friends in those places. And I loved to see all those things and feel like a citizen of the world. But at the end of the day, if I played one show in Seattle, I made more money than that entire tour. And so I truly was being paid in experience, which is a thing that gets old after a while. Uh, you can't, you can't cash. So, you can't go to the bank and cash exposure. No. And even if, even if you take all of our American tours by the end of our long career, as a touring band, not the longest career, but you know, uh, 10 years of it, uh, the, the shows that we played in Chicago, Boston well, not even Boston, but yeah, kind of Boston, Chicago, Boston, New York, uh, West Virginia, Austin, LA, San Francisco and Seattle. They were the shows and everything else. Even, even when we got to a point where we were getting paid pretty well for an indie band, everything else was fucking gas money. And if we had just, if we had just gotten in an airplane and flown to those five to, to eight cities and played our shows, uh, we probably would have made a, about the same. Because flying there, spending one night in a hotel and coming home is the same as spending three days driving there and right. spent and that's and, and that's hotels. what that's what the um the presidents were able to do at scale right was that whole yeah. like drop in for a saturday night show with a really big audience yeah the, the presidents could fly to stockholm make forty thousand dollars and fly home and to them you know the what it was basically was we're going to spend 30 hours doing this and for 30 hours we each get $15,000. So, uh, ready? Go. And even that ended up being too much work for, for them. You know, they were just like, nah, that's, that's 30 hours that I'd rather spend doing something else. And we didn't, you know, we didn't have that option. We had to do those shows, but, it, but it's true of my record sales too. If you look at the record sales over the course, when I pretend to fall came out in 2003, between two, I know between 2003 and now I have the data to say how many dollars that record has produced for me in toto. Uh, all of the records I've sold from the first one I sold out of the back of the truck to a girl in Milwaukee, Wisconsin to the, you know, to the download that it probably happened today. And if you think about Kickstarter or Patreon and you think about the successful versions of that, I could make that amount of money from those funding sources exclusively. You know, if Ted Leo makes $160,000 on his Patreon or his, uh, his, his uh, whatchamacallit, his Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. That is more money than he would have made putting that album out on a label and touring it for two years. Mm -hmm. 
And so you go, wow, okay, it truly is, if you can do a successful one. I mean, and the, and the terror is that I would put up a Kickstarter for my new album and then make $11,000. <laughs> and then it would be like, oh, okay, I guess I'm going to sell these out of the trunk of my car. Hi-ho, hi-ho. <laughs> yeah, right? Like, well, maybe that's, they got to do another thing to make a million dollars. But but it that is was, a, That it, was not part of the rules that it had to be only one thing. You were allowed to get there, right? Yeah, yeah. Then I'd be like, well, I guess I got to write a novel. Whoa, another 11 grand. Okay, I'm really going to have to kick it into high gear here if I'm going to make a million dollars. But, but you know, this whole thing of like uh, for the last 10 years of the music business of saying like, well, you know, bands really sell T-shirts or they really sell kazoos. That's what the real business model is. And you're just like, no, fuck you. But now it really is possible to make $160,000 just on your Kickstarter. And I guess that there's some fulfillment he has to do. He's promised people that he'll come play piano in their living room or he's done. I mean, I, I didn't follow the Kickstarter very carefully, but right there, there it's like at the $5,000 level, I give you my car Yeah, mm-hmm. at the $10,000 level. Like I will, I will donate sperm to the, to the, uh, to the sperm bank of your choice or hmm. whatever. That's a nice gesture. You know what? I'll put that in my Kickstarter. Do that. Put that on the illegal pad. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> at the ten thousand dollar level, sperm. <laughs> the ten thousand dollar level, I will give you two vials of sperm, and you can do whatever you want with them. Will you deliver them personally? If you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come to your house. You can, I didn't tell I'll, you how I was going to give it to you. <laughs> I'll go into your bathroom for fifteen minutes. Yeah. And then I will give you a Coke can full of sperm. <laughs> <laughs> You're groaning. <laughs> <laughs> I love my fans. 